We uh, started a journey last week, a divergence from our uh, study that we've been going on through Romans uh, in order to explore some passages in the Gospel of Matthew where we find Jesus, in essence, teaching us all about the reasons for him coming into this world incarnate, coming in human flesh. We read last week in Matthew 5 in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, and we read there of how Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. He instead came to fulfill them. We read those words last Sunday, and we, we read what Jesus preached after that, and came away with the knowledge that what Jesus was saying is that he himself really was the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament had said. The Old Testament was always pointing forward in time, pointing forward to the moment in which the second person of the Godhead would enter the world as the Savior of mankind. And mankind really needs a Savior. And in part, when Jesus says that he came to fulfill the law, he is saying something about the reason that we need a Savior. God has created humankind. As creator, he demands human obedience to his will, his law. But mankind fails at exercising godly obedience. We are all lawbreakers. We are not law keepers. And so Jesus fulfills the law by entering into this world in human flesh, living in the flesh under the law, living in perfect obedience to the law, God's law, on our behalf. He even becomes the final sacrifice, fulfilling the law by fulfilling the sacrificial requirements of the law. So Jesus came to fulfill the law. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Well, today, this morning, we skip somewhat ahead in Matthew, in uh, in the book of Matthew until we get to chapter 9 and we read another word from Jesus again about why he came incarnate, what his purpose was for coming. We find it in, in verse 13 of Matthew 9 and we find there Jesus saying, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. For us to better understand what Jesus is meaning by that, we'll be reading this morning beginning at the ninth verse of chapter 9, and then concluding with that 13th verse. So let's pray, and then we'll read the text together. Let's pray. Our Father, we uh, lift up our needs to you, and we need you, Lord, to impress upon us the truth of your word. We need you by your spirit to fill us in a way that we read your word, we accept it, and we digest it, that it becomes a part of us. And so, Lord, work in us in ways beyond our imagination as we encounter your word. We ask, Lord, that we would see more about who we are, more about who you are, more about our need for Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that with that, our lives would be duly changed. We pray it in his name. Amen. So Matthew 9, beginning at the ninth verse. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, 
They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Amen. To put Jesus' words succinctly, he tells us here in our passage that his incarnation, his taking upon humanity himself, involved his coming for the purpose of calling sinners. But before we ever read those exact words that come from his mouth and at the very end of our passage, we find that our passage begins with an illustration of Jewish Jesus doing that very thing, calling a sinner. The man who writes this gospel account of Jesus' life, Matthew, includes this short vignette about how Jesus had called him. And he leaves no doubt that his being called by Jesus was most certainly the calling of a sinner. Now that might not quite be apparent to us as readers in our day as they were to the first readers of this gospel. But when the gospel writer Matthew refers to himself in the third person by saying that there was a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, by identifying his occupation, he illuminates himself to be the sinner that he is a person that all of his first readers would assuredly understand to be a sinner. I would assume that for most of us, if a tax collector showed up at one of our doors, it wouldn't be someone that we would see as being the most welcome of visitors. If any of us received a, a letter in the mail uh, regarding an audit of our tax return, it wouldn't fill us with very much joy. While we might not be, as a people, entirely anti-tax, we still know the work we've done for the money that we've earned, the money that we pay into the government. So anything that might seem to us to be an extra step being taken by our govern government to collect what we've worked for is never seen by us as much good news. But whatever our modern perceptions of the job of being a tax collector might have been, those perceptions could never rise to the level of disrespect held in the hearts of the Israelites for the tax collector working in the day of Jesus. There was perhaps no one, no one more despised among the larger Jewish populace of the first century, no one more despised than the man who collected the taxes. In fact, being a tax collector was synonymous with being a sinner a chief sinner among all sinners. You see, in those days, the tax collector was under an obligation to collect whatever amount of tax the Roman government deemed appropriate for an area. And the types of taxes that were assessed were many. All people were required to pay some tax just because they existed. There were also taxes assessed on goods that were traveling through a province in an area like Capernaum, where this calling of Matthew would have taken place, an area near the Sea of Galilee, the fishermen were always being taxed upon the catches of their fish. 
And when we read in this passage that Matthew was called to be a disciple of Jesus while collecting at a tax booth, it's quite likely that he was either collecting taxes on those goods passing through or collecting taxes on the fishes being caught. Now, so far, that description of the tax man probably still doesn't raise our ire very much. We don't see that as being so horrible. But unlike the tax system that we tend to know, the exact amount of such a tax on the goods or on the products in that time was never predetermined. In other words, the amount was not a percentage of the value of any cargo or the percentage of the number or the weight of the fish caught. The tax collector's obligation to the government was to collect whatever overall tax was assessed that the government deemed appropriate. And in many ways, that made it then so that the tax collector would collect from anyone the very most he possibly could get. And to make it worse, the personal income of the tax collector was the amount he collected over and above the total taxes for the area. And so when that happened, the tax collection process often became a process of extortion. The tax collector might say to the taxpayer, you must pay me more or I'll tell the authorities that you paid me nothing. So you can imagine how hated the tax collector had become. He was viewed as a criminal. He tended to act as a criminal. And don't forget that the tax collector's overzealous collection efforts were directed also against a Jewish people of whom he was a part, all while collecting those taxes for an occupying, oppressive, and pagan government. So the typical view of the tax collector was that he really was like a criminal, and he was a traitor to his people. In a non-scriptural writing from around the days of Jesus, the label of tax collector was lumped together with other sinners, like murderers and robbers. Now, perhaps that might seem more historic detail about the job than you might have been seeking this morning. But I lay it out so that we all have in our minds that when Jesus says to Matthew, follow me, he is calling to himself a man that everyone in that day and time would have seen would have known to be, by all earthly measure, unworthy of the kingdom of God, unredeemable from his sin. But Jesus calls Matthew. He calls Matthew. And do you notice that as, as Matthew presents this account of his coming to Christ, his focus is really far less on his own following Jesus and instead in the whole, centered upon Jesus' calling of him. All Matthew says about his own commitment to follow Christ is that he, Matthew, rose and followed him. Even the reaction of the Pharisees shows no sense of all that a tax collector would leave the source of his livelihood, a lucrative livelihood, and to repent of his wrongs to follow Jesus Christ. Instead, the, the Pharisees' reaction is simply one of all one of all that Jesus would ever dare call one so vile in their eyes. And that reaction is certainly not only awe at the fact that one tax collector would be called by Jesus, 
but the calling of tax collectors and other sinners appears to be the rule for Jesus as opposed to the exception. What Matthew tells us after saying that he rose to follow Jesus is that Jesus reclined at table in the house. That would be Matthew's house. And behold, many tax collectors and many sinners came and were reclining with him, with Jesus and his disciples. The way the Gospel of Luke describes this same event is by giving the additional detail that Matthew himself, also known as Levi, gave this big reception for Jesus, this big party. He throws a feast, a feast for tax collectors and sinners. It would be expected, I suppose, that at a gathering at the home of one like Matthew, that the only guests he could ever get to come were people like himself. Great sinners in the eyes of the religious. Who else would he invite? Or if others more righteous were invited, who else would go? No one, it seems. No one except for ones like Jesus and his disciples. Jesus goes to them. Jesus goes into the midst of what the Pharisees would have shunned. And the Pharisees are shocked. They stand in awe of the guest list of this party. And as Jesus gathers with such despicable sinners, there is actually a sense of intimacy in the gathering as well. They are reclining at table. That would have been the posture at a dinner during that time. It was customary. The members of the party would, would eat at a low table in a reclining position, almost lying down and resting on the left elbow as they ate. Jesus relaxes with these sinners. He eats and drinks with a house full of tax collectors and others just as bad. And in Mark's gospel account, we are told specifically as well that many like these, many like these, like the tax collectors, like the sinners, were all among the followers of Jesus Christ. The truth of the matter is that all who ever follow Christ, all of us are just like these tax collectors, just like these other sinners. Every human being is a wretched sinner, and every human being is a sinner in need of the one who has godly authority and is able to forgive us of our sins. And here we are seeing, here we are seeing the willingness of the righteous one, Jesus Christ, to come to this world, to be among the unrighteous, to engage with them in fellowship, and to call them into the citizenship of his kingdom. And that is what we all so dearly need. Now we'll come back to that in just a while, but notice, notice how the willingness of Jesus to come and to call the sinner is here being contrasted with the great unwillingness of the Pharisees. In this passage, we are really only given insight into the minds of the Pharisees present through this one question that they ask of Jesus' disciples. The question, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, you could perhaps hear that and, and think that it's simply an inquiry, a, a short question seeking a plain answer. But in the context of Jesus' many confrontation with the Pharisees, especially in this chapter, we really must understand 
that there is a tone of ridicule toward Jesus as that question is asked. I could say it's, it's less of a question being asked and more of a rhetorical criticism. So critical are these Pharisees that by the time one reaches the end of this chapter, the Pharisees will charge Jesus with casting out demons because he bears the power of the prince of demons. This is no innocent question seeking information. The view of the Pharisees was one that saw the tax collector and other sinners as ones not worthy of fellowship with them, not worthy of fellowship with anyone claiming authority from God the Father. Tax collectors and sinners were to be shunned. They were to be shunned by a self-righteous community and never welcomed by any religious figure. But Jesus came, he came to call sinners such as these for sinners such as us. Those who are well, they have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus came into this world for an ailing humanity, for a sick humanity. It would be wrong for us to suspect that Jesus did not detest the sins of the people with whom he dined. The wrongs of the tax collectors would certainly have offended the law of God. Jesus would never commend tax collectors and sinners for their sinful acts. But what we see in Jesus, especially in the way he responds to the questioning of the Pharisees, is that the affliction of sin is an affliction that is in need of a cure. Jesus does not come to condone the sins of the sinner, but he comes to bring healing from that sin, to bring a cure from the effects of the sinfulness of men and women. Those who are well have no need for the physician, only those who are sick. We would all think it ludicrous if the door of the doctor's office had posted a sign, the sick need not enter here. It's just as ludicrous. No, it's, it's even more ludicrous to think that Jesus would come incarnate only for those who were righteous. His incarnation, his life on this earth was to bring about a healing for the sinner. And that's why he's found among sinners. That's why he says he does not come to call the righteous. He comes to call those who are in sin. But there's also a great irony here in his rejection of the righteous. When we read in this account of how, how he, he says that he, he doesn't come for the righteous, we also know, just like we knew that there was no a commendation for the sinner's sin, there's also no rejection of righteousness in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of a man, in fact, is a character that Jesus would very much desire. But Jesus rejects the so-called righteous one because anyone who claims to be secure in his or her own righteousness really is missing his or her need for Christ. Sin, you see, has infected every one of us. The late D. James Kennedy devised a method of gospel presentation he called Evangelism Explosion. It's a presentation that many of you might know something about. It has as its design the sharing of Jesus Christ and of our need for him. It's a, a presentation of the gospel to an unbelieving world 
the presentation if giving according to if being given according to design begins by the one sharing the gospel asking two diagnostic diagnostic questions excuse me and one of those questions is this if you were to die today and god were to ask you why he should let you into his heaven what would you say it's a common thread to many responses that are given by one who doesn't already know Christ. If the unbeliever supposes heaven is in his or her future, the person will say something about how his or her goodness or how a degree of his or her goodness is what either will certainly or hopefully open heaven's gates. But the problem is, is that if one rests entirely on his or her own goodness to open the gates of heaven, the gates will for that person be forever shut. God's standard is a perfect standard. His righteousness is perfect and none of us matches up to that standard of perfection. Our best works all fall short of God's perfect holiness. So if we dare rely on our own righteousness in life to earn for ourselves a position before God, we will never find ourselves reconciled to the God who has made us. To gain eternal life, to gain true life, to be forever in all eternal blessedness with our God, we all must eventually recognize that we are not righteous in ourselves. We have this this deadly illness within. We have sin within. And we need the healing touch of the great physician to cure us of what ails us, which without him would be our death sentence. You see, these Pharisees who question Jesus' disciples are really questioning Jesus' association with sinners because they have failed to recognize their own sinfulness. They fail to see their own need for a healing touch. I said a bit today of what it would mean, what it would have meant to be a tax collector in the days of Jesus, but then we now also tell you what it might have meant to be a Pharisee. To be a Pharisee would have been to be a member of a particular sect of the Jewish people in those days. And the Pharisees, the sect of the Pharisees, was a sect that sought meticulous adherence to the law of God, especially against the influence of a Greco-Roman world in the first century of Palestine, an influence that was leading the Jewish religion to unrighteousness, to compromise. Their reaction to that compromise within their faith led them upon a quest for a stronger religious purity, a quest for purity that often played out in a way emphasized practice over heart. It played out in a way that advanced a religious formalism, a ritualism over and above a true loyalty to God from the depths of one's heart out of love for God and out of love for God's fallen creatures. The first century historian Josephus described these Pharisees as being a body of Jews with a reputation of excelling the rest of their nation in observances of religion. You see, for the Pharisees, you were either like them, that is, ritualistically pure and thus righteous, 
or you are part of the rest of the population. You were a sinner, no better than the tax collector. And if you were one who would dine and associate with sinners, one like Jesus, one like those disciples, you were no better than the sinner, no better than any of them. What we find in this passage, though, whether it is through considering the particular call by Jesus of one man, one sinner, Matthew, or whether it is in Jesus' willingness to be among this larger group of tax collectors and sinners, is that we are all by that being brought face to face with the great mercy of Jesus Christ. His mercy is at the heart of what his incarnation is all about. Jesus goes to Matthew's house. He enters into Matthew's fallen world. He tabernacles with the sinners. He eats and drinks among sinners. And he does that to call them out of their sin and bring them the only healing that will save them from their sin, the healing of the great physician from the curse of their sin. And so Jesus' reclining at the table in Matthew's house is really a microcosm, a microcosm of what his coming to earth in flesh is all about. As God, he knew the glory of God. And yet he came to earth to eat and drink with sinners and to bring his wondrous light to a world in darkness so that the unrighteous could be cloaked in his righteousness. That, my friends, is Jesus' great mercy. And so Jesus, after having heard the question that the Pharisees posed to his disciples, and after having answered that overheard question by saying, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Well, after all of that, Jesus directs the Pharisees back to their Bibles, back to their Old Testament scriptures, back to the prophet Hosea. And he tells these Pharisees, go and learn. Learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In many ways, the writing of the prophet Hosea could be summarized as a prophetic word about God's love and mercy. Mercy in spite of the sinfulness of his chosen people. And part of what Hosea does is to, is to in his prophecy, confront people with their sins, sins of failing to love God as people ought as well as those sins against fellow human beings. But Hosea makes clear that all of that sinfulness that was happening in Israel was happening while people still brought their repeated and continual sacrifices before God. Burnt offerings were being given to God for their sins, but it seems if, as if that was being done with a mindset in which the offering was offered but there was no repentance of heart. Almost as if the shallow outward action of a burnt sacrifice being given was all that was necessary for that sinner to live and, and then he could just keep on sinning. The offering was in a sense then a mocking of God and the people's religion at that time that had become a dead orthodoxy, a religion of deed and a religion not of heart just like what was happening among these Pharisees. And with that context in mind, by quoting Hosea's words from God, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And by telling the Pharisees that they should learn what that means, 
it becomes apparent that Jesus is telling these Pharisees that they should have been the ones eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors. They should have been doing that long before he himself came incarnate. The life of these pharisaical religious leaders should have exhibited a heart for the sick and, had not, and, and, and not instead a, a, a heart who saw their lives resting on a misplaced idea of their own self-generated holiness. Jesus came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. And these Pharisees were showing that their thought of their self-righteousness was so misplaced. And we see that for the very reason that true righteousness includes possessing that merciful heart. Their lack of mercy was showing that they were sick and that they were in need of the great physician. No one is righteous. No, not one. The truth of the matter is, is that every human being is like an ancient Jewish tax collector. Every human being is a wretched sinner. Every human being is a sinner in need of one with the authority of God who, out of his great mercy, would forgive us our sins. I look at this group of people here today, and I would say to you, you all look pretty good. You look pretty respectable. You're obviously churchgoers, after all, you're here. I know you all, at least nearly all, and I don't know of any of you who are a career tax collector. I look upon this group and I don't expect that any of you today will leave this place to find police officers waiting to haul you away for the bad acts you've done. You seem so honorable, you seem so respectable, but please don't rest on that reputation. Don't rest on your good works or any part of a self-generated righteousness. Do not be a Pharisee because the truth of the matter is is that you and I are sinners and without Jesus Christ in the sight of God, you and I would be no better than Matthew or his cohorts who had received the invitation to the feast. You and I truly are not better than the robber or the murderer or the adulterer or the pornographer or the cheat or the liar. You and I, my friend, are sinners, everyone. But please take heart. Jesus has come to call such as you. Rest in Jesus Christ. Take comfort in knowing that Jesus entered this world to work his salvation and bring forgiveness for sinners like you, for sinners like me. Rest in the comfort that Jesus has brought to earth the cure for human sin. And then also know, also know that he is a savior who is still calling sinners to himself, calling sinners every day. The work of Christ goes on today through the inner call of the Holy Spirit, the one he has sent. And it goes on through the outward call to a word of sinners through the people of his church. Jesus came into this world incarnate to call sinners, sinners like each one of us. So by all means, may we also follow his lead and be used by him as a means to call other tax collectors and other sinners to himself.
Jesus' incarnate life was a life of coming into this dark world to show his mercy, and may we learn from what he taught the Pharisees. May we realize that as he has shown mercy to us, we should spread that mercy among other sinners like ourselves. Those who are well have no need for a physician. Those who are sick do. He came for the sinner. He did not separate himself from the sinners, but he came to them, he dined with them, he ate with them that they might know him. May we do the same and shed his light on a world that is so in need, the world that he has come to heal. Let's pray.